0: Open source software powers everything that we do on the internet. Google runs on Linux servers. Content sites are served by WordPress. Our data is queued in Kafka clusters and stored in MongoDB instances. The success of an open source project often leads the creator of that open source software to become wealthy by starting a business. An open-source project can be monetized through enterprise add-ons or consultation or simplified hosting. The creators of open-source software know their domains so well that they are usually well-suited to operate one of these kinds of open-source business models. Open-source business model success stories include Elastic, which was based on the Elasticsearch open-source project, Cloudera, which is based on Hadoop, and Red Hat, which is based on an enterprise version of Linux. The rise in usage of cloud providers has changed the viability of some of these open-source business models. Amazon Web Services can monetize almost any open-source project more profitably than the creators of that project. And this is because AWS has established distribution channels with all of the people who are running their server instances on AWS. If I already run my application on AWS, and I'm looking for someone to provide me with a hosted version of a database or a search engine, I will probably choose the hosted database that AWS provides, unless I have a good reason to choose a different provider. The Commons Clause is a license condition that open source projects can use to protect their code from being profited from. Redis which is an open-source in-memory object storage system, recently added the Commons Clause to their license with the goal of improving the business of Redis Labs, a company built by the creators of the Redis project. If this sounds confusing already, don't worry, we're going to explain it in this episode. Kevin Wang joins the show to discuss everything about open-source, from business models to security vulnerabilities to licensing. Kevin is the CEO at Fossa, a system for managing open source licensing and security. Kevin was involved in the creation of the Commons Clause and has written about it in detail. He is also one of the foremost experts I've met on software licensing. I believe that Fossa is the second platform he has started around open source licensing. So he is a dedicated expert in the field of software licensing and knows a whole lot about it. I hope you enjoy this episode. Kevin Wang, you are the CEO at Fossa. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you so much for having me. Fossa stands for Free Open Source Software Analysis. Explain what your technology does.
1: So we're an open source project. And basically, we build a tool that you can plug into all your build processes, CI to CD pipelines, uh, and then we'll help you track and manage all the different open source dependencies that you use. I mean, it's you know, great for the individual developer, but the magic really happens when you get to deploy it at scale across, you know, hundreds of build pipelines across a bunch of different teams. And so we do that in a bunch of companies like Twitter, Zendesk, Docker, Oath, etc.
0: The first area that your open source software analysis software tool has focused on is compliance and license management so there's a lot of people out there who probably don't know why this would be an important concern why is compliance and license management of software an important problem
1: yeah, so you know the most important product on top of our technology is this compliance automation suite. And so you know basically what it does is it goes through all your dependencies, it scans every line of code for different licenses, and then uh, it'll just do the job of collecting all of the hundreds of licenses that you might be using across your open source projects. And then what we'll do is we'll automate things like reporting and compliance documentation, we'll flag any violations we see, we can help you enforce these policies. And so that's what the tooling does. The reason why why it's such a need, is I think there's a couple of things that have really changed. The first piece is, you know, most software companies now in any product that they ship is using, you know, up to eighty to ninety percent third-party code. And so, if you're using an app today or you're running some code in production, that stuff is third-party IP. It's not written by your developers. And and every single one of those is under these you know hundreds of different types of licenses. Uh, a lot of them are very unique. A lot of them have very uh, unique types of interactions. And so, uh, that kind of scale of legal complexity is just something that a lot of legal teams can't really handle anymore. And it's super important because it's the majority of your product. And the second piece is that legal risk is just one of those things that escalates really, really quickly. Uh, you know, you can have one very small kind of violation that can spiral out of control into something that really poses a lot of business risk. And so, you know, while, you know, some issues, especially things like code quality issues can be contained to a certain area of the code base, uh, legal issues are one of those things where if you, you know, just have one thing that's not fully crossed off, it could be a big problem.
0: I don't think I have heard of any cases of software companies getting sued because they are not adhering to the licenses of the open source software that they're using. How does this legal risk actually manifest? Do companies ever get sued by open source projects?
1: Well, all this stuff happens all the time. One of the major issues is it's something that usually isn't super public. It usually isn't something that goes to court. It's settled way beforehand. But specifically, when license violations happen, partially it's from a violation of open source licenses. But the other part is a lot of the times, and this just plays into the narrative of you know how hard it is to control your code as a modern company, is that you might be using proprietary software and you don't even know it across most of, you know, the open source registries out there, like NPM or GitHub or et cetera, you'll find tons of code that's just out there, but it's on license. And it'll just turn out to be proprietary code. And we've seen the most crazy instances. Like we've seen some companies actually become these sort of like copyright trolls where they'll intentionally publish packages that look like open source packages, but have some phone home mechanism. And all it does is like parse dates or do something super, super trivial, and then they'll go out and then sue any company that uses it. And so those types of things are super exceptional. They're not very common. I, w- I would say that it's not likely that you're using something that belongs to like a open source licensing troll. But there is a lot of stuff out there, and it's just very, very hard to keep track of what all of the different licenses you're using.
0: Yeah, I guess it reminds me, I guess, of a, because I'm a podcaster, it reminds me of this whole patent trolling around podcasting a while ago where there were podcasters whose entire business was threatened by one patent troll who happened to say, oh, I invented what the podcast is and here's my patent right. around it. And it threatened Adam Carolla's business and Mark Maron's business. And they had to spend a lot of time fighting it. So it it is unsurprising that companies would want to pay for a solution that just takes this risk off the table or at least makes it a, uh, a very small risk?
1: Right. Well, again, our message here is not to, to spread fear. And that's one of the things that I um, kind of hate about the marketing around, especially around things like open source compliance solutions is, is it seems like the digital marketing says, hey, Look at all this stuff that you have to be afraid of. Be afraid of open source. And I think our message, especially as an open source project itself, is you know don't be afraid of open source. And and open source is amazing. It's something you have to use regardless. And, and instead of embrace it, be good at using it, and use tools that can automate and manage this kind of risk at scale instead of you know, having your legal team manually audit this kind of stuff.
0: So one thing you're implying here is that when you find a... A repository on github or npm that you want to use and you bring it into your software there is a multiplicity of different licenses that that software that could potentially be under there's there's lgpl and Mm -hmm. i don't don't know all the acronyms but maybe you could tell me about some of the ways that the licenses vary even though all of these projects may be open source how do the licenses vary
1: Right. So there's a couple of major categories of licenses. And for for all intents and purposes, I think that most people care about whether they just can use it and not think about it, or whether they have to really, really consider whether they can use this license or not. And so, inside of the open source world, uh, the two most important categories are permissive and copyleft. And so, permissive licenses basically say, hey, you can pretty much use us for whatever purposes, as long as you give some minor attribution or something like that, we're all good. And the copyleft licenses usually say, you have to use us, but you're obligated to make sure that this code stays open. So they'll have things inside of it like the GPL is very famous for saying, hey, if you use this GPL software, well, it has to be incorporated into other software that's also GPL and open source. And so the copyleft features basically try to perpetuate the open sourciness of whatever it's integrated into. And for tons of reasons, this can be very problematic for businesses that want to protect their IP. But that's just, that's a general aside on that category. And the permissive licenses are very open. Inside of the open source averse, and and when I say that, I don't mean you know, open source licensed projects, but just things on GitHub and NPM and all these registries. You'll also find a bunch of other really creative licensing schemes too. You'll find a ton of source available licenses, which aren't open source licenses. They're licensed that preserve some of the features of open source, like having code availability, but will require payment or licensing if a certain threshold is met. Uh, You'll find a bunch of other proprietary types of licensing schemes, and also just tons of unlicensed code in general. And so there's just a lot of different kinds of licensing schemes. Many of them have different compatibility issues. And so a lot of permissive licenses aren't fully uh, compatible with a lot of the copy left or proprietary licenses. And so those are all some examples of things to look out for.
0: There are people listening right now who are minutes away from turning off the podcast because they're thinking, this is not interesting to me at all. This is like license (laughs) management. Why would I care? But one thing that I find interesting about it is that licenses can, if you have a creative license, you might be able to build a business model around an open source project, whereas without intelligent licensing, you would not be able to build a business around it. So people who are listening who are entrepreneurial should be paying attention because. The idea of an open-source business model has has been appealing for a long time, but it's, it's elusive in many ways, uh, both for contemporary reasons and for fundamental reasons of open source. Tell me about the relationship between licenses and business model viability in yeah. open source.
1: So I totally agree with you, right? I don't spend my entire day reading through licenses and getting excited about it, but the really interesting thing about licenses and the reason why they're so hard to read and dense is they're the building blocks for human intent. And so they're effectively the medium that carries your ability to commercialize something like an open source project or build a business or make sure that you get to you know, import this new feature without without having to build it yourself. And so they're really, really important building blocks and it's important to understand them. And so most of the open source licenses out there, they you know, don't really have any way of capturing some sort of business model, but there's tons of licenses out there that are really popping up now that are on the topic of open source commercialization. So if you want to create an open source project, you hit it big and you want to be able to sustain that open source project by either creating some sort of proprietary offering or proprietary version of your open source project, then you would be looking for a new licensing scheme to say, hey, for these sorts of use cases, it's commercial and we're going to use that to fund the development on top of open source.
0: Right. So I think I want to go ahead and dive into this. And I want to come back to your business and uh, some other elements of open source a little bit later on. But this question of the commons clause is something that I know people really want to hear about. And I want to go into as much depth as, as we need to here. So there are issues not only in how open source software is consumed which is which is what your your business fossa is about like how are you consuming the open source software are you consuming it in accordance with a license but the production of open source software how open source projects can capitalize on those pieces of software that they're building especially relative to cloud providers so there is this this issue that's epitomized by the redis labs question where I start an open source project, maybe it's an open source database or an open source in-memory object storage system, it's doing great, there's a community behind it, and then a cloud provider stands up a service-sized version of it, for example, with Redis. So Redis Labs is a company that was started around the, the Redis object storage system that's open source. And there's also Amazon Redis. So Amazon Redis has been able to capture much more of the value of the Redis project than Redis Labs. Explain more about what happened with Redis and Redis Labs and Amazon Redis.
1: Right. So before we dive into this, I want to preface it with a couple of things. First, I think the discussion that has popped up around things like the Commons Clause it has conflated a bunch of different kinds of issues. And so I want to draw a couple of lines. The first thing is we should not confuse the commons clause with open source. And so the commons clause is definitely not non-open source license. And for some background, it's effectively a license addendum that you can apply on existing open source licensing scheme to turn it into a proprietary license. And specifically, it's like a source available license, which means that you can turn to in a project where you still get a lot of the features of an open source license. You get to you know, see the code, modify it, distribute it, but you just can't sell exactly the same thing. But for all intents and purposes, this is not, you know, open source. And so one of the things that happens is, is first, whenever you start an open source project, and I think this is completely clear across the board, you're pretty much making a commitment saying, hey, this thing is going to be open it's going to be uh, free, people can do what they want from it. And you've, you've made that commitment to make sure that you don't put any restrictions on top of it. And you can't really take that back because, um, you know, if you ever try to change the license on top of it, people can fork the older versions, there's, there's really no, it's very, very hard to reverse that action. And so when, you know, something like the Commons clause comes out, you know, it's not really going to go through and turn open source projects to something like closed source projects. In the Redis example specifically, you know, Redis develops a very popular, you know, open source database and I don't, you know, the the kind of action here is not to like figure out, all right, how do we commercialize and take the most advantage of an existing project? But Redis, if you recognize how it's developed, I think like 90% of the committers work for Redis Labs. Most of the development is funded by this one specific source. And so this source has one really important way of making money, which is selling hosted and managed Redis. And if you take that away, then that really threatens the future of the open source project. So what Redis did was Redis took some of the enterprise modules, which are, you know, part of their commercial offering, they're they're not part of the core open source project, it's not going to affect any of the developers, and say, hey, in the future, for these, you know, enterprise modules only, for this commercial part only, this is now officially a commercial project. And the important part of that is, in order to retain that kind of ability to commercialize, you're actually sustaining the ability for the open source project to succeed. And so the move here was really to uh you know protect the thing that was funding the existing open source project from extremely powerful and large businesses like you know the Amazon, the Googles of the World, uh from being able to use their channels and completely you know, bully everybody else out of the market.
0: Right. So one thing to point out here is that while Amazon may be capturing the most value from Redis through Amazon Redis they do not contribute code back to Redis. Is that correct?
1: So in most cases, not much. And that's okay, because the it's under a license that basically says, hey, we've given you permission to do whatever you want with it. And so they don't do that. And that's not something I think to sort of necessarily be frowned upon, because, you know, Redis is especially explicitly given permission that this is an okay thing to do but I think that also means that it's a totally okay thing for a Redis to do to take some of their commercial code and explicitly say hey this is now commercial code moving forward
0: what were the modules that Redis li- Redis the project the open source project decided to put under Commons clause
1: hmm so there are a couple of modules that were exclusively created by redis labs so i think they're redis search redis graph uh, rejson redis ml rebloom but they're they're effectively these add-ons on top of Redis uh, that go into their enterprise offering. And so there, you know, it's, it's nothing about, it's nothing inside of the core open source project that's Redis. Uh, Redis is open source. I think Redis made it very clear that's always gonna stay under a very permissive and open and license. And so the only thing that's changed is future versions of their enterprise modules.
0: Okay, just to be clear, so what does the, putting those modules under the Commons clause, what does that change?
1: So, the Commons Clause is basically, it's, it's very short. You can go to commonsclause.com to read what it's about. But it pretty much says that you can do whatever you want under the existing license grant, except for sell, uh, essentially the same thing. And so, I believe those modules were previously licensed under Apache 2, which is a very permissive license. It's one of those licenses that says you can Mostly do what you want. And the commons clause is just added on top of it saying you can still use it under the terms of that license, uh, except you just can't sell substantially the same thing. And what that means is that you can't, you know, just package it up into a cloud offering and sell exactly the same thing. Or you can't just take it, you know, toss it on a CD-ROM. I don't think anybody would ever do that anymore. But, you know, ship it out to somebody. You just can't sell just that software on its own. You can still provide services on top of it you can still integrate it into uh, commercial applications if it's like a module. And so if you're using like REJSON for some JSON data parsing and you want to bring it into some application, you can still totally do that and sell that whole application. But you just can't sell exactly the same thing.
0: Okay. Now, I thought that this whole debate around the Commons Clause was interesting. I thought it was a step forward for for open source innovation because it just it doesn't restrict open source in any way it 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 expands the models of sustainable open source so that was my value judgment on this whole evolution in open source but there were a few at least a few very loud voices who were decrying the, oh, the yeah. creation of the commons clause oh <laughs> were, there, there were a lot <laughs> were there a lot i mean didn't did, I, I, <laughs> I mean re, relative to the amount of developers out there i think most developers are like okay i don't care at, about this at all but <laughs> but i okay there were some loud voices
1: okay what? there's some very loud voices very loud voices <laughs> so so here's 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 what i have to say about that i think whenever you see something like this pop up and for those listening that are you know not caught up with the news. There was a lot of controversy when the Commons Clause first launched, and a lot of people saying, "Hey, this is going to be the death of open source." For a variety of reasons, it's obviously not true. We explain that too and address it on the website. But I think the first place is to just look at who's saying what to understand, you know, where this, like, what what type of opinion to really develop around something like this. And I agree with you. I think the Commons Clause is another option that people can choose to be able to fit their needs. And frankly, you know, it's, it's an, it's an option that's made as an alternative to going complete proprietary because there are some times when an open source project just can't sustain itself with its existing license model. So it has to, you know, it's like, all right, we have to make a licensing change. We have to go proprietary. And this is just something that's a bit more in the middle that says, Hey, you can still have an open source code base. You can clearly state, hey, under these conditions, it's, you know, it's a very narrow thing that promotes this kind of commercial use. And so, pragmatically, um, it's something that's, you know, in the middle. And I think we've seen responses from uh, two different camps. One camp is uh, people who sort of are there to steward and to defend the term of open source and defend what it means to be an open source license. And I think that's very, very true. And and in that case, I can understand why somebody would get really upset about this, because they see something like this, it doesn't exactly fit into an open source license definition, and that can be pretty confusing for people. But on the flip side, you know, most of those voices have not come from actual software developers themselves. But what the software developers seem to be saying is saying, you know what? it's been so long since we had a new license that can allow us to build a business model around the things that we're doing. We hear frustrations like it's so hard to create an open source project, make it successful and get paid for it and sustain it. And we've seen a lot of positive outpour and just this general sentiment that the existing licenses out there don't really fit our needs on what we need as software developers. And so something like this is, you know, really, really welcome. And since then, you know, we've seen a bunch of different companies like Neo4j, DGraph, you know, etc. Adopt the Commons Clause. The other day on Twitter, I saw Michael DeHaan, who is the creator of Ansible, adopt the Commons Clause for his new, you know, project vespin.io. I've also seen, you know, MongoDB come out with the SSPL, mm-hmm. which was, you know, a, a change in the GPL. And the whole idea is, I understand how, you know, one license proliferation is really confusing, and it's really bad. But on the flip side, I think some, you know people need to recognize that you know the last really popular license was written about 10 years ago, and in the span of 10 years, we've had the cloud revolution, we've had containerization, we've had all these fundamental shifts in technology. Open source is completely different today than it was 10 years ago, and it's about time that there's a couple of new licenses to address all of those changes and serve developers in the modern era.
0: MongoDB is another interesting data point. Can you explain what happened there?
1: Yeah. And so I think MongoDB came out with, it's the SSPL, uh, I forgot exactly what it stands for. It's a new open source license that they came out with. And what it seems to be is it seems to be uh, something like a fork of the AGPL. And so it seems to be targeting kind of like a similar goal, I'd say as the Commons clause, but in something that, Tries to fit the open source definition a little bit closer, and if I'm aware, basically MongoDB when they changed this license, uh, they also submitted it for approval against the open source initiative, which are the you know the folks that kind of. Sp- guard the term of what open source means, define it, and approve different licenses as actual open source or non-open source. I don't think it's gone through the approval process yet. So, as of now, it's in the non-open source category. But it seems to me to be a bit more into the category of we're trying to be an open source license and here's this, you know, here's the way that we're going to do it.
0: Hmm. Well, yeah, it's, I, I didn't exactly understand the terms of the license, but the motivation seemed the same. There were some cloud providers that were productizing MongoDB in a way that was cannibalizing some of MongoDB, the company's business, mm-hmm. I guess.
1: So, so here's a bit of history, I think, to fill some people in. And so, you know, a long time ago when we were, and this is why software licensing is like, Really, really crazy and hard. So, a long time ago, when we were distributing software, we'd like throw them on CD ROMs, like whatever floppy disks, and or you'd like download them directly from, you know, from a server. And the way that you can control how this stuff was getting used was really clear. It's basically distribution. And so, if you're getting a CD ROM, if you're like downloading this thing, then it's clear how you can control that point. So, a lot of licenses were written around this idea of distribution. But then, you know, everybody moved online. And then now you're using websites through your browser and you're not like downloading all of the software anymore. And so here comes this license called AGPL, which tries to get around it. And it basically changes the term distribution to something like conveying which basically means you know the scope of license is no longer on downloading the thing it's on like if you're even using it through a web browser or something and then now with cloud providers you know there's sort of like a new way that they're using software which is you know take a service like Redis or Mongo and put it into a managed service and that doesn't really fit the idea of conveyance that the AGPL is drafted under or the idea of distribution which most licenses were drafted under so now it's kind of this like whack-a-mole of different issues where it's like all right here's a new way of Writing software. All right, let's run and chase it and then whack that mole down with a new license. And I think that's one of the things that I understand is sort of scary from the open source side is, oh my God, there's gonna be so many different licenses. It's gonna be so hard to keep track of what's going on. But the flip side is if you don't have any experimentation over how new licenses go, you're gonna actually increase the chances that you're going to have this sort of like whack-a-mole license structure. And I think it's better to sort of try to come up with blanket licensing schemes that can cover a bunch of different uh, sorts of use cases.
0: Now, the cynical person that's listening is going to say, okay, I'm hearing this from Kevin Wang, the same person that's trying to sell me software that allows me to manage all of my licenses in an automated fashion.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, totally. You know, that's... A pretty good point. Honestly, I don't <laughs> really like I, somebody so, told me that on Twitter through this like whole debacle. And I was like, or I think it was on Hacker News or something. And I was like, oh, man, that I guess that is sort of like a weird thing. So here's the thing that what I would say to that is, if the intention here was for us to grow our business by making licensing more complicated, then there are probably easier ways we could do it. Like, you know, we, you know, we're growing startups, so we can, you know, hire more salespeople. We can focus on like, you know, better like content marketing and proof features, et cetera. And so there are like much, much easier ways, I think, for us to grow our business than focus on stuff like that. I think the real history of this is we're a pretty popular license management tool. I think we're the most popular license management tool around open source projects around developers. You know, we don't put out content that says be afraid of open source licenses. You know, we we try to put out we try to be very open source to ourselves. We have open source projects that we maintain under permissive and copyleft licenses. And we generally be are pretty transparent in how we do our business. And how we got involved in this is just, you know, we're part of a lot of different licensing discussions. And a lot of people tend to come to us when they need help with different licenses, when they, you know, want to do something open source related, but You know, they don't have a, you know, they don't have internal expertise around it, or they want to figure out what's the best way to come up with, say, some new licensing scheme or pick a license for their project. And so we just end up in the middle of a lot of the stuff.
0: Well, and in your defense, I was looking at your background. I think you've been passionate about, as far as I can tell, you've been passionate about software licensing since you were like a young teenager. Is, is that accurate like you built some some oh, yeah. in, some indexing software over all these different licenses and stuff it seems like you're, you you are genuinely passionate about this and to to be making things unnecessarily complex and overly licensed would be you know you'd be selling your your passion short in favor of making a quick buck which doesn't yeah. doesn't seem like something you would do
1: yeah, so in high, in high school, I think the first thing I built around this stuff was a site called TLDR Legal, which summarized software licenses like open source licenses into these simple summaries that are plain English, human readable what you can, cannot, and must do under the license. Since then, that's um, you know, millions of developers have used that thing. It's inspired GitHub's license chooser and and the GitHub license page as well. And so yeah, I mean, I what I saw is I was a kid that was always into open source. The open source community was how I learned how to code. I got, you know, I, one of the first jobs I ever had, I worked at Cloudera working on the Hadoop ecosystem. The main dangers that I saw against open source were things like bureaucracy and things like FUD and people just misunderstanding things like licenses and being really scared of them. And so I feel like our mission is to kind of take the fear out of this stuff because, you know what, I am not concerned at all about, you know, the ability for lawyers to be afraid of, you know, new licenses inside of companies and then, you know, make sure that companies act really cautiously and slow things down. And so, you know, I'm not concerned about that at all. I, I think the real answer to all this stuff is just, you know, create license schemes that are simple and pragmatic and then just build tools that make it really easy for people to figure out what's going on. And do it from a developer's perspective because frankly it's it's developers that are on the front lines of all this stuff and so uh, and so yeah I mean I think that's the way that we want to try to solve the problem uh, again we don't really go out there fear-mongering on licenses I think there's been more than enough of that and I think that's just a net negative for the entire industry I think our message is hey this stuff doesn't have to be scary look you can Pick up this tool, use it in the next couple of minutes, and get a whole compliance process running at your company that probably beats a lot of the manual legal review processes that people have previously invested millions of dollars in.
0: So, I think another sentiment that I saw in some of the people that were opposed to the, the Commons Clause coming into existence was, why does Redis Labs need to do this? Couldn't they figure out some other creative way to monetize their business? You know, you look at a company like Elastic. Elastic is going to IPO. They've got software that's built on top of open source, and they've managed to make it work to the extent of an IPO, even though AWS has their hosted version of Elasticsearch. What's the difference between Elastic and Redis Labs?
1: So the context here is that we, we operate in business right? And I don't think, you know, the commons clause is a perfectly drafted license. And frankly, I, I think most open source licenses out there are pretty poorly drafted, like like the MIT license, even the most popular, you know, open source license out there, super short, doesn't really say anything about a lot of important things that lawyers would think important. think are important, like, you know, patents. But, but frankly, you know, in the world of business, things are constantly moving. And for a company like Redis, where there are Extremely valuable releases that are launching every quarter or so, getting something done and shipping something is you know more important than I think theory crafting the absolute most perfect solution that's sustainable over time and I think whenever you create something like a new license. It's definitely important to be very, very careful of it. But there's a there's just a whole intent on, on what it's supposed to do. You want to maybe like trigger a discussion with people that are using it under certain ways that you feel like are uncool. And even if you were to spend like a whole year coming up with this Super perfect 45 page license. Well, then the risk that you have is, you know, first there's always going to be people that either misinterpret it or don't, you know, think about it in the right way or find a bunch of problems with it. And the bigger risk is if it's this, you know, long perfect license or thing that has been sort of like overly theory crafted, people are just probably not going to read it and label it as like, all right, this is too long, you know, uh, TLDR, right? And, and, And then just not use it at all. And so I think. From what I've seen so far is that some of the most successful open source licensing schemes are really not the most pure from a licensing perspective, but are just like simple and easy for developers to get the gist of what the intent is and easy to sort of distribute it at scale. And I think the reality of what happens at Redis is, you know, Redis is a business and they're moving fast and they're growing fast and they're doing incredible things. And you know, they just needed to get something done and get something out the door.
0: So the Commons Clause is an example of a solution to one market failure within open source, or what I would say is a market failure. You've got Redis Labs developing software and AWS capturing the vast majority of it. Another market failure that comes to mind that we covered recently was you have Babel, for example, and Henry Zhu, who works on Babel all the time, and every major website, well, I don't know about every major website, lots of major websites use Babel, but it's just an open source project maintained mostly by this guy, and he doesn't really have a way to get paid for it. Now, I think he's he's found success in a Patreon sort of model, getting paid just by people subscribing to charitably, donate to him, continuing to work on it, well, it's not entirely charitable. It's also out of their own self-interest. You know, a company like Facebook wants to keep having access to Babel, but with that as another example, what are the other market failures that exist in the world of open source?
1: You know, I, I would push back on that. I don't actually know if that actually is a market failure, because I think you know we we live in a capitalistic society, right? And if you create a lot of value and you can capture a lot of value, you can build a really, really great business. I would actually argue that major, major open source projects that create value on the scale of things like billions, right? extremely, extremely important infrastructure, have no problem getting funded. And and, and it comes in a couple of ways. One is you can create a really successful business. And in 2018, we've had so many incredible outcomes like Elastic and, and et cetera that are proven that if you create a really valuable open source project, there are tons of ways to create extremely valuable businesses around them. And so that's one market success. The other side is if you create you know, foundational open source projects that you know are really important, you can actually raise a lot of money without just having to create a business. There are foundation models where you can get support, you can go to businesses. There are probably just markets of service economies that can develop around it. And usually one of those services businesses would actually step up and try to fund the development of that project itself. And so there aren't real market failures. I think what we're seeing, though, we're seeing some inefficiencies, right? They're on the scale of, of small companies and, and, and small developers. And so Babel is obviously really, really popular and pretty important project in the JavaScript ecosystem. But if you're comparing the amount of value that was created through that versus something like Linux or Kubernetes, it's, it's like a completely different zone. And to make something like Babel successful, well, you just need to fund you know one or two developers. And I think that's one of the limits of the kind of Patreon-esque model is, is there might not Be enough value that you can capture around something like that, that actually warrants, you know, some sort of scalable market function. And I would actually say that, you know, a couple of developers, even something like OpenSSL, where we have a few projects that are really important that are a bit ignored, are in the grand scheme of things, just cracks in the whole market system that has been generally very, very successful. And we're still filling them. We're finding them. I mean, the pa- the Patreon-type model and those sorts of things, I expect, will be relatively small compared to the size of businesses that are created around open source. But will do a great job in filling in the cracks and will be really important to ensuring, like, you know, the security of our future when we're building everything on third-party code.
0: I, I guess you could say, if you have somebody like a Henry Zhu who can keep Babel going, or you have him and, and one other developer, and they get whatever, 220k in Patreon donations per year, you could argue that's a market success rather than a market failure.
1: Absolutely. And again, here's, here's one of the things that I want to bring up about how successful this market has really been, is um, open source is so new. And think about, like, everybody thinks about the open source community as centralizing around, like, GitHub nowadays. But, like, remember, 10 years ago, GitHub wasn't even remotely close to what people think about it today. There was a period of time where GitHub was, like, people were saying, oh, yeah, there's that site where you can use Git. No, I'm going to use SVN because Git sucks. And that wasn't that far along ago. And in that period of time, you have these gigantic economies of scale, these billion-dollar companies that have just churned out like hotcakes, These relatively large-scale, like, Patreon-type funding models that would have taken so long to really develop, and people generally understand the value of open source now, it's – all this stuff has happened so fast, so much faster than any other industry that I've ever seen in history. And so, this market has been really, really successful. And when anything grows and there's any fundamental change in technology – Sure, it'll have a couple of cracks and you can nitpick on the edges of, oh, this, you know, person's not as well served as this other person. But, you know, that's the beauty of capitalism, right? When you see a need, somebody can create something around and fill it. And right now we see a lot of projects that do just that. And they seem to be going really well.
0: Hmm. You know, one example that comes to mind, I don't know if if you have any thoughts on this, but you mentioned Linux and Kubernetes and something that i feel falls somewhere in between those two on the timeline is docker and docker you know docker the company i think i don't mean to disparage them at all but i think they're struggling now i don't know i don't know to what degree they're struggling i i think i saw them on this yc company list recently still so i think they still have a Quote unquote billion dollar valuation. But, you know, relative to how much value the invention of Docker created, it seems like Docker, the company, has not been able to capture much of that value.
1: Yeah. I mean, look, did Docker have the absolute ideal execution? No. I don't think anybody would say, yes, they did everything perfectly. But at the same time, like, you know, think for a second about, you know, what criticizing somebody like Docker really means it. Cause they created a billion dollar business and they were able to, you know, miss out on so many different types of opportunities or like, you know, Kubernetes and things like that, or like people say miss out, but they were able to do so little compared to what they could have done. And they still created a billion dollar business. And that's mind boggling to me. Right. And that is something pretty, pretty incredible. Right. And so, you know, I, I don't really like it when people say, Oh, you know docker failed because they didn't own kubernetes when they should have right. and they didn't they're not a 100 billion dollar company they're only a billion dollar company and you know that that term only a billion dollar company is pretty fantastic to me it's pretty incredible because a billion dollar company is amazing right that's that's an insane crazy outcome and you know they've Created, they've produced something that even if they didn't capture 100% of the value of it, they have so they, they, they've changed an the industry, they changed technology, they've consequentially uh, created hundreds and thousands of different jobs around containerization, and so I think they've done a great job. Uh, the well, people have criticisms on their execution, but they've done a fantastic job overall.
0: That's the thing is, I, I agree with your assessment there. What concerns me is I'm not. I mean, I guess we'll find out, but I don't know if. That billion dollar valuation is is still there because now uh, you kind of look at the company and I just I don't know what I don't know how, how you how you sustain a, a billion dollar val I don't know what their service contracts are or whatnot um, so maybe they're doing just fine I really hope they are because they contributed mm-hmm. a ton but if they were to not be fine, like if if they, you know, had to raise money a down round or, or something and then, you know, kind of got sold or, or something, I don't know, it would just be like, that would be kind of right. too bad because that would yeah. be an example of like the cloud providers sort of being able to eclipse and engulf, uh, you know, an open source company, but...
1: Right. Look, it's it's never going to be perfect, and I, I can't speculate yeah. about how Docker is doing internally. But there is this kind of narrative where if you create an open source project that's so valuable, you can do so little compared to what you you know truly see retrospectively. Right. You know, twenty twenty, they can still create something that hits a billion dollar valuation, right. and, and that's amazing. Like it's it's all right. Well, what if they actually did? win it big and, you know, and beat Kubernetes or what if they did create, you know, the most popular containerization service? Or what if they did, you know, do XYZ? Those are all things that we can speculate on. I think, you know, generally a lot of people agree that they didn't do as much as they could have. But even with that, you know, the tailwinds of just that open source project alone yeah. is, is incredible. I will say though, the one, you know, real limit though is as soon as you create an open source project of that scale, you're committed to having to maintain it. That open source project takes a lot of yeah. attention. Uh, you know, this is something that we we saw at Clydera too. We just had so many developers that are just on staff as full time <laughs> contributors to Hadoop, and you know, we controlled Hadoop, but we didn't. You know, we, we didn't own it, right? Other people could, like Hortonworks, could come around, and sell Hadoop offerings, and do things like that too. And so, and so, sure, there's there's risk associated with that. And I think one of the things that people don't appreciate is that when you create an open source project of that scale, so much of your time and attention as a company is sucked into making sure that open source project is successful. That you know, this commercialization effort a lot of the times the secondary. And that's what I think companies need to get more credit for, is that, you know, these companies aren't people like executives, you know, rubbing their hands together at top being like, haha, I'm gonna figure out how to make money off all this open source now. They're people that are super dedicated to the longevity of the open source projects. And I think Docker is just an example of people that are just so passionate about open source that, you know, maybe the commercialization stuff was something that was, you know, secondary in their mind for a little bit too long while they're really focused on making sure the community was sustainable.
0: Yeah, definitely. Good points all around. Let's shift the conversation a little bit. So, you know, I've been thinking a bit about the whole centralization around these things like NPM and GitHub and I wonder if do you have any opinions on the dangers of everybody just being blindly pulling npm packages and cloning github repos is there anything fundamentally dangerous about that
1: well here's one thing that it really relies on is it gives you the single point of failure and that could be either really good or really bad it can be really good because you know you have the team maintaining that is you know really great at security really great at best practices really great at implementing the stuff then you just have a really secure ecosystem, and if they're bad at doing that, then you have a really you know insecure ecosystem. And so it depends on the implementation. And from our experience, like you know we build tools that integrate with you know, 20, 30 different package managers and registries and languages. And so we've pretty much seen it all in how people do dependency management. And I will say that there are definitely some ecosystems that do it really well. And there are definitely some ecosystems where we question some of the decisions. And so I'll give you an example. And this kind of ties into, you know, sort of like the fun of building code analysis tools for this stuff. So the the best ecosystem I think that I've seen by far is, is the Rust ecosystem. It was written by the guy who, the package manager that was written by the guy who previously did RubyGems. And they have this philosophy where it's like publish less packages, but make sure they're super high quality have very hard constraints to make sure that, you know, breaking changes are things that are built into the versioning scheme of the registry itself. There's a lot of tooling that operates on top of the language to make sure that there are very few bugs. And now, you know, inside of Rust, you have one of the most high quality open source ecosystems out there. Right, but on the flip side, you know, when you use a tool like npm, you know, the people I think all recognize that the JavaScript ecosystem has been one of the most incredible and powerful ecosystems out there. But when you're using stuff in npm, you don't really know if it's good or bad. You don't really know who wrote it. You don't know if it's something that might have a ton of bugs or might have security vulnerabilities or licensing issues inside of it. And one of the things that makes it hard is some of the design decisions and implementation of you know tools like that in the beginning don't support a lot of features that today, when we look back, are really, really important. One of the most important features of that is uh, something called effectively either like re- repeatable builds or build determinism, which basically means if you have the same project with the same configuration and you build it in one machine, and then you take that project and you put it into another machine, you're going to get the exact same you know, list of open source modules that are pulled in, the same versions, the same you know modules and everything. And that's really not the case with most open source ecosystems today. Most open source ecosystems, if you run a build at 9am or 9pm or have different you know, different kinds of build configurations or network conditions, it can completely change lists of open source projects that you bring in. And what that really means is that um, if you're a company and you're using a lot of open source projects, you really don't have control over what you're using. You don't really know if, you know, You can do nothing to your code, and tomorrow you can have a critical security vulnerability or a critical licensing issue or some sort of code quality bug that can just pop in and affect your entire application. And I think that's a scary thing to me. And I see people moving into trends where they're trying to implement more of these deterministic features into the package managers, but we're still a pretty long way from there. And that's why I think people are investing so much in scanning for these sorts of things and, and bringing it as part of the pipeline.
0: Right. And so that's the second product that your company is, is coming out with. So it's like you've got in continuous integration tools for compliance, but then you've also got static analysis tools for security risks, for, for mitigating security risks that are associated with open source packages. So while you're checking for open source compliance with licenses, you can also check to make sure that all the, the packages that you're using are up to date.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so basically, um, the kind of logic goes like this: If most of your code is open source and third party code, that means most of the security vulnerabilities that are going to be in your application is now coming from these places too. And so you need a new strategy for managing it. Previously, a lot of the investment towards product security has been around training developers to write secure code and and making sure that your code that you write is, you know, AOK has the right kind of logic doing stack analysis on top of that stuff. But now, the main area of risk is actually making sure that you use components that other people have wrote that are secure. And that's because most of the code and business logic that runs in your application isn't your own developers anymore. So, people are shifting their their investments to look towards open source and third-party things. And the type of analysis that you need is no longer just static analysis of your code. You need dynamic analysis about how your build behaves. And again, because your build can change from like 9 a.m. to 9 p.m., with no changes on your part. This is something that you kind of have to run dynamically inside of your continuous integration or build process to really get an accurate picture of what's going on. So
0: what's the vision for the company beyond static analysis and compliance risk assessment? Where do you think it'll be in like five or 10 years?
1: Yeah, I mean, our, our ambition is really to be, you know, the, the platform for using and managing open source at scale. And so the the reality is open source is here to stay and it's only going to get increasingly more relevant. And so it's sort of a key part of your strategy because I, I think all companies now are realizing that open source is this critical supplier and for them to be successful in being a technology company, they have to know what they're using. They have to know how to control it, manage it at scale automatically throughout their entire development process. And so there's a lot of different problems inside of it. We're starting with compliance. Uh, We've launched a security vulnerability offering. Uh, We're working on this code quality offering as well to help people make sure that they're using modules that are of high quality. Uh, We have a couple of other things that we're putting together. But ultimately, we're trying to build this unified platform for being successful with being open source. And, And it turns out if you're you know if you're good at open source it turns out you're probably good at being a technology company
0: Hmm. agreed yeah you could be like a white listed github or i mean or i guess you could just keep building like random tools that people need and they'll keep paying you for them that works too
1: (laughs) yeah ultimately it's um there's sort of two pieces. One, you have to be a part of the developer workflow because they're the ones that are on the front lines using this stuff all the time. But the business value really comes from, you know, the lawyers having dashboards to see what's going on, being able to get the reports. The business people seeing, you know, how quickly their software development process is moving based off what they're using and understanding how to make strategic investments in different ecosystems. It's from the security team being able to keep track of all the vulnerabilities that are coming in through their through the process. So this is not, Something that just spans like one developer. This is something that's an organizational-wide concern across a large enterprise with you know tons hmm. of different webs everywhere. And so I think there's no shortage of value we can provide. I think there's easily you know many billion-dollar companies that are going to turn out of solving this problem well. And I think we've done a really great job so far with compliance. And you know we're excited to see what's next.
0: All right. Well, just to close off, I want to ask you. Do you have any other views about open source software, open source governance, things that might surprise people?
1: Hmm, that's a good question. I mean, overall, I'm just, you know, really excited about open source itself. A lot of my time, just sort of free time recently, has been thinking about open source commercialization. And, you know, one of the things that I think that that I'm surprised is still a surprising fact, but isn't just well understood enough is that open source isn't free. Open source is very, very expensive to build and maintain. And, you know, software engineers right now are one of the best compensated jobs in America. And, and you need many of them, the, the top tier ones, to really create successful open source infrastructure. I think one of the most surprising facts is something that we talked about a bit earlier, which is how new and fast changing this stuff really, really is. It's like open source ecosystems are almost seasonal at this point. There, there's a completely new way to write JavaScript every three or four months, right? And this level of change is kind of unprecedented. And we're you know working in an industry where pretty much all the building blocks to make ourselves succeed and make the next generation of products are you know, almost free and, and open and and easy to use. And that kind of funding needs to come from somewhere. And that's you know something that's just constantly changing and super accessible. And, and so when we think about open source commercialization, when we think about these topics and think about what it means for the future, I think we need to pause for a second and just be very grateful on what kind of industry that we hmm. work in, how incredible it is that if I needed to go and you know build this incredible UI, or build, find some sort of way to store my data super efficiently, I can, you know, pull something off from across the internet that has had tens of millions of dollars invested into the development of it and just use it right away and get up and running. That's just completely incredible.
0: Well, I share your gratitude. We are attendees of the same church of uh, open source software. (laughs) Kevin, this has been really great talking. I I really
1: appreciate you coming on the show. Great. Thank you so much, Chef. I appreciate it too. Wow.